We are creatures of habit. We, we really are. I'm guessing if this is your church home, you likely probably often even sit in the same area. <laughs> Not all of us, but we're creatures of habit. This morning, one of the first things I did, I bet you can probably guess what it is. I went and made myself some coffee, um, and I went outside since it's so nice, and I sat on my front porch, and I drank my coffee, and I you know looked at my plants and watered my plants and spent some time in prayer. But the these are things that we often, that I often do just out of habit because this is what I'm used to doing. I remember when our kids were little, um, Rachel, uh, when she was still napping, so when she was really, really little, she would come out and, you know, her hair would be all over the place and she'd have dry drool all over her face and she would come out with her eyes half open and she would always come to one of us. And she would want to sit in our laps and just be there. Like every day. Did you get permission to tell that I story? I did. Okay. I didn't tell her about the dry drool part, but she's also helping him find kids. Oh, she's not here. <laughs> um, but I did get her permission. Um, but we're creatures of habit, right? These are the things day in, day out, in, in certain seasons that we do almost without thinking. And today we're going to, we're going to continue our narrative in, um, in looking at the life of Moses. And there's, I want you to pay special attention to the patterns that you see, the things that are happening as if they're just habitual, like the, the characters are responding in this way because that's just how they respond continually. All right, perfect. Let's catch up for just a minute on where we're at in this series. Uh, The story begins in the beginning of the book of Exodus, the second book in your Bible, and uh, it tells a story of uh, a time in which the Pharaoh of Egypt, fearful of the the numerous Israelite people that lived in his land, um, had not only enslaved them, but at this point was having put to death every male child born to the Israelite people. Moses was born into an incredibly oppressed and destructive um, nation. Uh, And so uh, his mother and sister, along with eventually Pharaoh's daughter, the women in his life, uh, save his life. And uh, he's put in a basket and floated out into the Nile River where Pharaoh's daughter finds him. Moses ends up being raised in the house of Pharaoh. Right, so an uh, an Israelite child raised in Pharaoh's household there in Egypt. Now, as he grows up, he finds himself in a bit of an identity crisis, as you could probably imagine he would. An Israelite child raised as an Egyptian and uh, the highest of uh, class in the society, and so uh, he sees uh, an Egyptian man beating uh, a Hebrew, one of his people, and he lashes out and he kills the man. And what he's done comes out into the light, and he flees for his life to a land called Midian, nearby Egypt there. And for the next 40 years, Moses lives as um, a shepherd in the land of Midian. He marries, and he raises, he tends to sheep and cattle for his father-in-law. And uh, after 40 years, at 80 years old, God came to Moses in the form of a burning bush. That might be a familiar image or story. Uh, and, And he says, It's time to free my people. Moses, I'm sending you to free my people. So last week we looked at Moses as he begins the conversations with Pharaoh. We find him in Pharaoh's court and today a pivotal moment and in fact the moments that will precipitate uh, Pharaoh driving the Israelite people out of his nation. 
So we're going to start in Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 2. And this is God speaking to Moses. You are to say everything I command you. And your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Okay, before we uh, dive into the details of the story of the, the ten plagues and all that transpires here, we wanted to read this passage and, and, and talk about the idea of a hard heart. We're going to hear this throughout the text today and throughout the story, Pharaoh and his hard heart. Now, in this, in this passage and in a number of other places, it identifies God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And uh, so I want to talk for just a moment about that. First, I want to talk about the character of Pharaoh as we enter this story, right? We have a Pharaoh and Pharaohs previous to him that have committed genocide amongst the Israelite people in their nation, uh, corrupt and uh, abusive slavery taking place within this nation. And so we see in the beginning of the story, Pharaoh, whose heart is very hard, uh, it, it says over and over for the, through the first five or six plagues, um, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But then we get some of this language uh, that we see here in this passage, as it says, God hardens Pharaoh's heart at this point, uh, having to do with this God saying to Moses before he goes into Egypt, um, I'm going to multiply my signs and wonders. They are going to see the full weight and wrath and strength that I possess, right? And God is going to wage war against the gods of Egypt. Um, now, we're not going to take time today to try to identify all 10 plagues and which God that highlights. We'll talk a little bit more about the gods of Egypt in a few minutes. But understand this, and as we read this text, God is at war against the gods of Egypt, proving his power that not only Egypt and not only Israel, but all the world would come to know the one true God. One of the other things I love um, in this passage from the beginning that God makes clear, God says to Moses, here's what I want you to do, and here's what I'm going to do. And so God says, hey, you and Aaron, you're, you know, they're, they're a team going to Pharaoh. You and Aaron, you do and say everything I command you. And then I, God, will bring my people out of Egypt. And so God makes clear here, your role is to do what I tell you to do and to say what I tell you to say. And my role is to bring my people out of Egypt. Now, can you just imagine yourself being Moses for a minute? I mean, wouldn't you have so many questions? Like, but yeah, yeah, okay, I get that, God. But like, how is it gonna work? And God even gives them a heads up and say, hey, Pharaoh's going to harden his heart. He's not going to listen. I mean, wouldn't you have so many questions? I'd be, me personally, I'd be asking, can I please have more specifics? In fact, if you could just send down like a, a calendar, a planner, maybe color code what you're going to do, what I'm going to do, and the order that all that's going to happen. I'd just really like to know the detailed 
plan. I like the outlines. You like the outlines. I'm like, no, all the details, you know, color-coded planner. That's what, I'd love that, God. That's what I would respond. Um, but God here is saying to Moses, hey, do, do what I tell you to do. Say what I tell you to say, and I've got the rest. And as much as I ask God for details, I think often he still operates in that way. He's like, hey, here's your next step. Follow me, and I've got the rest. So God clarifies what his purpose is in um, the chapters to come and the experiences to come, that people will know that I am Lord. Last week, if you were here, uh, Pharaoh asked this question. When Moses first engages in conversation with Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, who is this God that you speak of? I don't know who he is. And he turns his uh, gaze and his attention elsewhere, right? So God is going to demonstrate through these plagues, through the, the things to come, exactly who he is, that people will know that he is the Lord. We're going to cover now here uh, Exodus chapters 7 through 11. It's a huge chunk of text, and I highly encourage you to spend time reading it yourself this week. Uh, we're going to have to kind of highlight and, and uh, summarize it, um, but spend some time in the text this week. Uh, for now, let's dive in. In Exodus chapter 7, as, as Moses goes back to God, God had given Moses some instructions. Say, hey, when the Pharaoh asks you for a miracle, do this. And he had Aaron throw down his staff, and the staff turned into a snake. And uh, Pharaoh sees the snake, and he calls his magicians over, and he say, hey, can you replicate this? And the magicians are able to replicate this, this supernatural, miraculous thing. And it's so fascinating to me because from the very beginning of this story, we see that this is a spiritual battle being waged here between God and, and, and evil, between God and the other gods of Egypt. And there's a foreshadowing here at the very beginning of this story when Aaron's um, staff that had turned into a snake then eats all the other snakes. I mean, it's like, hey, God's God's demonstrating this is what's going to happen, guys. And yet we, we're told that Pharaoh hardens his heart. Moses and Aaron have asked Pharaoh, let, let, let our people go out into the wilderness where we can worship God. We want to take a three-day trip. And Pharaoh says, no, I need your slave labor. So, of course, he has denied their request. And so uh, in chapter 7, as we dive in uh, to the ten plagues here, um, Pharaoh would not let their people go and worship their God. And so it begins. The first plague found in Exodus chapter 7 is that of turning the Nile River to blood. The Nile River is the lifeblood of the region. It's the lifeline. It, yeah, lifeblood, that's an ironic uh, way to say it, huh? It is what brings life to the region, right? Both for crops and for people. It is desperately needed, and it has turned to blood. It says even the, even the water in the pots turned to blood in this moment. However, you'll see if you read through that chapter, again, the magicians in Egypt are able to replicate or duplicate something that appears to be the same sign and so Pharaoh hardens his heart and says, no, your people cannot go. Seven days later, God again sends Moses and Aaron. And he says, stretch out your hand over the waters and frogs will come up and they will cover the land. And again, the magicians are able to duplicate that and do something like that. Um, but Pharaoh calls Moses and he asks him, he says, hey, pray that God would take away the frogs. <laughs> pray that they would take away the frogs and I will 
let the people go. And Pharaoh's given a choice by Moses saying, when do you want me to do that? And in Exodus 8 verse 10, tomorrow, Pharaoh says, and Moses replied, it will be as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Again, the purpose of what's happening here, so that you will know that there is no one like our God. I will pray and the frogs will leave at the time that you said. But in fact, they don't leave. Instead, they die. Yeah, yeah, not they leave. They die all over the land of Egypt and uh, the text. That doesn't sound pleasant. No, no, but I've experienced this before. Um, a not, plague of frogs? Not exactly <laughs> this, and I wasn't there a few thousand years ago to experience, but I've experienced this something very similar. Sarah and I both went to Abilene Christian University in Texas. That's where we met. And um, uh, Abilene experiences a lot of plagues. It's very similar to Egypt. I'm not sure the and people from Abilene would appreciate you saying that. I've got two <laughs> illustrations, and they both have to do with how similar Abilene is to Egypt. Um, so uh, every year, uh, Abilene is overrun with swarms of crickets. Yeah, Carrie's nodding. He, he used to teach at this university. Um, so yeah, we, um, uh, you experience just swarms and swarms. They're absolutely everywhere. And of course, uh, after they complete their purpose in life, they die on the sidewalks and in the roads. And it stinks to high heaven. And I mean, you cannot walk without crunching on crickets. They're absolutely everywhere. It's incredibly disgusting. So um, back to Egypt, Um, Moses and Aaron, uh, the plagues have begun to play out, right? And it's gross and it's uncomfortable and it's causing major disruptions and challenges in Egypt. And yet so far, uh, Pharaoh's magicians or wise men or sorcerers, they're called a few different things. They are able to duplicate what's happening. And so Pharaoh continues to harden his heart saying, no, this guy doesn't look that impressive. He's about to see more though. He is in chapter eight. Then they take the dust. Oh, am I yeah. supposed to You're be supposed talking? To keep talking. I'm You're doing talking. great. Keep, go- keep going. Yeah. Uh, so he says, "Stretch out your staff over the land, and the dust will turn to gnats, and the land is filled with all of these gnats." Now, at this point, the magi- the magicians could not do what Moses and Aaron had done. So this is a turning point in the story found in chapter 8. And um, and it says the magicians responded to this uh, saying, this is the finger of God. I don't fully understand that expression and why they refer to his finger, but like this is the hand of God. This is God at work amongst us. For the first time, the magicians recognize this is a power far beyond our own. However, Pharaoh is unrelenting. So the next plague is the swarm of flies. And so again, Moses and Aaron go and say, let my people go or else God will send these swarms of flies and talk about gross. Like it's not just a few flies, but flies that would cover people, flies that would cover houses and be inside houses. Um, there's a phrase in there that says they would cover the ground, that many flies. But in this fourth plague, what's really interesting is that God makes a distinction here between the land of, of the Egyptians, where the Egyptians are living, and the land of Goshen, which is in Egypt, but that's where the Israelites were living. The land of Goshen would not be affected. Exodus chapter 8, verse 22. But on that day, I, God is speaking here, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there so that 
Can you guess what he's going to say there? So that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people, and this sign will occur tomorrow. Can you imagine the stark difference of walking from the the area, the regions where there were flies covering everything, people included, and then you step onto the land of Goshen, and all of a sudden there's no flies? There's nothing, no flies covering people and covering the land. I know in the summertime, just when we barbecue, just going in and out the back door, it's hard to keep the flies out of the house. But somehow, miraculously, God makes this distinction and, and this barrier and, and demonstrates again his power that the God of the Israelites has power um, here, and he demonstrates it by keeping the flies out of spe- the specific region that the Israelites live. And thank goodness they've suffered enough, right? Uh, these plagues are against the gods of Egypt. And so Pharaoh's character has remained pretty constant so far through the text, okay? Uh, he um, is speaking deceitfully. He's uh, manipulating the situations to continue to keep these people enslaved, to continue to be- benefit himself and the Egyptian people. Uh, but we see him relent just a little bit at this point after this fourth plague. And he says, tell you what, why don't you just offer your sacrifices in this land? You don't need to go anywhere else. Just do whatever sacrifice thing you need to do here. Uh, but of course, uh, they say, no, God has given us our marching orders. We are to go into the wilderness and offer our sacrifices. And again, Pharaoh hardens his heart and says, no, we cannot go. So plague number five is the death of all the Egyptians' livestock. He says, let my people go or your livestock will die. And again, there's a distinction between the Egyptian livestock and the Israelite livestock. And Pharaoh responds with an unyielding heart is what the text says. Then plague number six, um, Moses and Aaron take soot and they, they throw it into the air and it becomes this fine dust that causes boils. To, to come up and to fester on the Egyptians. And in fact, the magicians couldn't stand before Pharaoh because they were so sick with these boils. And at, this is the moment in the narrative where we see the wording is changed a little bit, and it's God hardens Pharaoh's heart. So in the first five, Pharaoh hardens his own heart, describes the state of his heart as hard and unyielding. And then in four of the last five plagues, there's specific reference to God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And there's been so much discussion and analysis of like, well, what's going on here? Pharaoh has been given so many chances to repent, so many chances to follow God, and he has chosen over and over to defy God. His heart is bent on doing evil towards the Israelites. And so we see God, and uh, we see God using, um, the hardness of Pharaoh's heart to demonstrate his power. You know, as Westerners, we're very much, um, all about independence and getting to make our own choices. And so when we approach this text, so often we want to ask the questions of free will and and individuality. And yet that's really not what the text 
is, is talking about here. This is not the questions that the text is asking or, or demonstrating. Pharaoh himself is considered a god in Egypt. And this text, this story, is, is written to describe how the God of the Israelites is at war with a God, the gods of Egypt, and will demonstrate his power and will rescue his people. And so those, the, the reasons why the story is written matter. And it sometimes doesn't answer all the questions we want it to answer. So I just want to say, hey, this is hard sometimes. Yeah, I Uh, I see in this God bringing about a a complete judgment over the wickedness, the evil, um, and and the gods of Egypt, right? So the story continues. If it's not bad enough, as as you just described, it turns to dust, which creates boils or the, yeah, boils all over the people. Uh, They can't even stand in the presence of Moses any longer. Um, And then in chapter 9, verse 13, it says this, uh, Let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force, as if it's not bad enough already, the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people. So you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I've raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God is bringing to fruition the judgment upon the gods of Egypt and uh, the cruelty and the injustice of the nation. Um, So he's going to bring a hailstorm that will wipe out this uh, seventh plague, a hailstorm that will wipe out anything that is not protected, that is not hidden away. Um, Sarah and I went to college in Abilene, and I don't know if you knew it, but Abilene's a lot like <laughs> Egypt uh, during we the go time again. of the plagues. Um, uh, did you ever have to make it's an not, insurance claim on a car that got ruined by hail in Abilene? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. It's either your car or your roof that's getting replaced because of the hailstorms. Um, so God says, I'm going to bring the full force. And he brings a hailstorm, a storm that will wipe out everything that is left out in Egypt. What wasn't destroyed by the bugs and all the other plagues will now be destroyed by hail. And we've been talking about God's purpose in, in all of this. And, and in the verse that you read in, in verse 16 of chapter 9, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So God is demonstrating his power for the Egyptians. He's demonstrating who he is to the Israelites and also for the whole earth, that his name would be proclaimed in all the earth. I didn't get it in my notes, but at one point in here, Pharaoh says, um, I have sinned against God. Do you remember? Okay. Okay. In this one, I think it's really interesting because the text specifies after this hailstorm um, that Pharaoh sins again by hardening his heart. And so we see this back and forth. God is bringing to fruition the full judgment upon Egypt and the gods of Egypt. Um, and yet Pharaoh still in this season is, is hard, is resisting uh, and hardening his heart against the people. They cannot go. I will continue to use them for my purposes. 
And so we come to the plague number eight, the locusts. God says through Moses and Aaron, how long, Pharaoh, will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Just let my people go. And at this point, the Pharaoh's officials, the magicians, the, the wise men, the different things that they're called, they come to Pharaoh and they plead with Pharaoh and they say, let them go. Don't you realize that Egypt is ruined? And so Pharaoh says that only the men can go, but no women and children and cattle. And so God brings about the plague of the locusts. And it's after the locusts that Pharaoh says, okay, I have sinned. Please pray and forgive my sin and take this plague away. And so the strong wind comes and blows the locusts away. And yet Pharaoh again hardens his heart. God hardens Pharaoh's heart here. In the ninth plague, three days of darkness. Darkness covers the land everywhere except for, again, where the Israelite people live. They're in pitch black for three days. Um, uh, So Pharaoh relents. He says, all the people can go. Men, women, children are allowed to go on this trip that you've requested, but you can't take your livestock. And Moses says, that's not the deal. We're not negotiating here. God has said, let my people go into into the wilderness. And Pharaoh again says no. Last plague, and this is a hard one, but Moses now has has told Pharaoh what will happen in the end. He says, one more plague is coming, and it is terrible. Um, But God had told Moses that Pharaoh won't will harden his heart and won't let the people go until the very end. And the last plague will be so horrible that he will drive you out completely. He will want you to leave. He will want to be rid of you. And so Moses told Pharaoh that the firstborn son of every Egyptian household would die. And it's such a terrible and such a sad situation here that every household in Egypt would suffer because of Pharaoh's action and Pharaoh's refusal to humble himself and to listen to the living God. And so that's the 10th plague, that the firstborn son dies and and, and God will prepare the Israelites for what is to come and give them specific directions. And in fact, next week we're talking about the Passover and, and what that represents presents and what that was like. Um, but we'll talk more about that next week. Exodus 12, one on that same night, I will 12, pass 12. through 12, one. Um, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Uh, we'll talk, as Sarah said, more about this Passover event. It is foreshadowing um, of uh, so much of how God redeems his people. Um, and we see here, specifically stated, um, bringing judgment on the gods of Egypt. Now, I just want to highlight a couple gods that existed in Egypt that are pretty relevant to the the, the plagues that we're seeing take place. Um, Isis was the goddess of the Nile, um, also considered a goddess of healing in the nation. And here, the Nile has turned to blood. People are plagued with boils that they have no way to cure. Um, Osiris is the god of the crops. And of course, at this point, between the hail and the locusts and everything else, there are no crops left in Egypt. Ray, the god of the sun, has been defeated. For three days, there's no sun, uh, no light in Egypt. And finally, Pharaoh himself and his firstborn son, who will rule next, are considered deity, right? A self-proclaimed 
He is the God of Egypt. And now with the death of his firstborn, God has demonstrated even his power over the God Pharaoh of Egypt. So that was a lot to cover in just a little bit of time. What we want to do as we, as we start to, to kind of digest and think about this story, this narrative, is we want to look at the main characters here. So we want to look at God and Pharaoh and Moses, the three main characters here. And, and what is it that we see? What is it that we can learn from these characters? From, for God, you know, God is present. For 400 years, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And I imagine there were a lot of questions about where is God? And God in this story is very much present. God is faithful to fulfill his promises. And so he, he, through Moses and Aaron, he tells the Israelites, I, I have seen where you've been, I've seen where you're at now, and I am here to rescue you. And his purpose in the way he's rescuing the Israelites through these 10 plagues, we saw over and over that everyone may know that I am the Lord. And that's everyone, the, the Israelites who, who may be questioning that the God of their forefathers, that you may know that I am the Lord. The Egyptians who you said they had like 2,000 plus gods is what's estimated, had all these different gods that the Egyptians would know that there is one Yahweh, one God, one living God. And then we also saw in here that all the earth, that his name would be proclaimed in all the earth. So God demonstrates his power over the gods of Egypt to demonstrate to the world who he is. Sarah talked in the beginning about patterns of living, just the routines that we go through and repeat in our lives. And Pharaoh's is an interesting one in this story. Um, when things are really bad, he relents, right? And maybe even admits, I have sinned against God. But as soon as the storms clear, as soon as a plague clears, he hardens his heart and goes back to his ways of being. And it's easy for us to look at Pharaoh from a distance and say how ridiculous to proclaim yourself a god and even up against all these plagues to continue to harden your hearts. But how often do we live as gods of our own lives in the same patterns as Pharaoh? In really hard seasons, it's easy, even natural, to turn to God and say, God, rescue me. But when things are going good, isn't it so easy just to get engrossed in the things that we enjoy or experience on a daily basis. Never forget entirely about the God of the universe. And so here today, we're reminded in Pharaoh's patterns, um, unlike Pharaoh, that we would be a people that trust in God, rely on God, thank God, and call out to him in our time of needs. Pharaoh demonstrates a very different pattern, though, one of incredible selfishness and pride, uh, which, of course, God brings judgment against. You know, in this series, we wanted to look at the life of Moses and Moses' relationship with God. And as we look at this narrative of the Ten Plagues, it's like repeated over and over. Moses went, God speaks to Moses. Moses goes to Pharaoh, tells him what God says, and it doesn't go well. And then Moses does it again. And again, and again, Moses has this pattern of listening to God, 
delivering an unpleasant message to Pharaoh, watching what happens, and then repeating it, listening to God again and obeying, taking that step again. We don't really know how long this process took. Some scholars estimate like 40 days for all the plagues. Other scholars say it could be up to like 10 months. We don't, it doesn't tell us how long each plague lasted, but this wasn't like a all happened in a week. Like this took a long time and Moses was in it for the long haul. He had this pattern of repeatedly going to God and listening to God and following through on what God asks of him. And I think there's definitely a beautiful message in there for us. When when things are tough and we want life to go differently, <laughs> we we don't want it to take so long. We don't want the struggle. And, and we're trying so hard to follow God. And we are, and yet things still aren't going well. We get to make the choice that Moses is making here. Yes, I will keep coming back to God. I will keep listening. I will keep following through, obeying what God tells me and trusting that God will work things out for good as God does. And so here we are, digging into Scripture, trying to understand what took place, what the text has, um, and, and what it meant to an original audience to hear of a God who was faithful to his people after slavery, God redeeming his people, bringing them up out of Egypt. And here we find ourselves asking then, what do we learn about the character of God? And what does it mean for my way of being, my life? We see the examples of Pharaoh, one we ought not follow, and we see the example of Moses returning to God, trusting in him and following in his guidance in light. We are in a uniquely privileged place in life uh, that we have the opportunity to know this of God, to be invited to be those that walk alongside God, returning to him, inviting his guidance, his wisdom, his direction in life, allowing the Holy Spirit then to lead us in his way. So we followers of Jesus are invited as we as we dig into this text today to know a God who is faithful, a God who is redeeming his people, to know that we are invited to participate in the things that he's accomplishing as Moses participated in him redeeming people in a, a few thousand years ago. Invite you to pray with me. Dear God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are the God who redeems, that you are a God who sees, that you are a God who hears. And Lord, we acknowledge that you are God and that we are not. Lord, in, in this narrative and in the story of Moses that we've looked at in the weeks to come, we just acknowledge that you make big asks of your people. And, and that we have the opportunity to trust you and to follow and to obey and to walk in, in, in your way, knowing that you are a God who brings about healing and goodness and redemption. And so, Lord, we thank you for, for your invitation that we might walk with you and that we might follow you, that we might listen and know you. And so, Lord, um, we just ask that, you know, wherever we're at in our journeys, and, and I know in a room full of people, we have a lot of different journeys and a lot of different places, wherever we're at, Lord, that you would teach us 
what the next step is that you would show us what it looks like to seek you, to listen and to follow, to obey what you have to, to say. Lord, we trust you and we thank you for the good, loving God that you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.